Welcome to the Life Support Podcast, where we share stories about being a doctor to build community and to heal each other, even when what ails us is incurable. My name is Paul Kim, and I just finished my first year of medical school. Already I have witnessed how medical school and medical practice have just as much potential to drain our spirits as to offer fulfillment and meaning. I hope my conversation with Dr. Nofziger today will help support you in living well your current phase of becoming a physician. Dr. Nofziger, could you tell me about how you came to be a physician? I grew up in a small town in Southern Indiana and my father was a physician, family, family medicine doctor. And I honestly, that, that has to be kind of the biggest influence. My mother was a nurse. So what I thought medicine was got shaped a lot by that. And if you've ever lived in a small town, you know, that really everyone knows everyone. The town I grew up in is 3000 people. And so really very small. We had one traffic light and a fairly high needs sort of, it was the third poorest county in, in the state of Indiana at that time. And that was one of the reasons that they started a practice there specifically. He, along with a group of um, med- medical school colleagues, mostly who were primary care physicians, one psychiatrist, which was a service that was in huge need in that place at that time. So my kind of understanding of what medicine was about was steeped in service and meeting uh, communities' specific needs. And then having a role in the community that was very, I guess, public, just because everyone knew who we were because everyone knows who everyone is. I enjoyed science. I enjoyed the idea of healing and health. And I sometimes wonder if it was partly also a lack of imagination. It looked like a good job. We lived comfortably in the high school. I went to the guidance counseling that happened had more to do with discipline than actual, you know, academic preparation and guidance. And so So sometimes I wonder if I had sort of explored other things, is medicine what I would have chosen? And I don't know for sure, but certainly it has been a a good place for me to land and a a satisfying vocation. Well, thank you for sharing that. As you said, you're not really sure if you had explored other things that medicine is where you would have landed. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the other actual roles that you hold inside from being, uh, from seeing people in clinic? I think actually the diversity of my roles now is one of I questioned that. So I wasn't necessarily anticipating when I went to medical school that I would want to roll in education. And I, you know, a lot of people will probably tell you that your career kind of evolves as things that interest you come along. And it's interesting. I think being in medicine is so closely connected with teaching people. You can't really be a great doctor if you're not skilled in explaining to patients why the things that you're asking them to do are important or just precisely how they will go about caring for their condition or taking their medication or all of that. So certainly education is interwoven with medicine. And I would say advising and helping people reach their highest potential comes close to medicine in a way as well, at least in the way that many people think about medicine, which is doing kind of just that for patients and and helping them overcome whatever health challenges they have to, you know, meet their goals and be as well as they can be. So the first thing that I sort of started doing that wasn't specifically patient care was happening when the school of medicine was changing its curriculum and the very first iteration of the double helix curriculum happened. And along with sort of 
the premise that we should give students longitudinal and deep clinical experiences starting from the first year came a realization that the way assessment had previously been done wasn't going to be the right way anymore, or it wasn't going to be enough. So if we say we're teaching you interviewing skills, then we, we need to find out if we did that and you can interview people capably. And so we had had some standardized patients components in teaching, but not really in assessment in a deep way. So there was a process of thinking more holistically about evaluation that started really from thinking about how do you define clinical competence? And that's a very nuanced and textured thing. And it goes far beyond knowledge, obviously. So our then medical education dean, Ed Hunter and Ron Epstein, who's one of my mentors, really did a deep dive, published something on what does confidence mean in medicine. And then that drove the assessment program development that became the comprehensive assessments or the end of phase assessments that you guys participated in just recently. In that work, I was particularly compelled by an interested in professionalism and professional identity formation. And what does that, what is that? Like, how does that happen? I wouldn't say it always happened smoothly or naturally for me, and it doesn't really necessarily for anyone, probably. So the peer assessment was something that I was particularly interested in, and the fact that peers really actually have a view to professionally important skills that we bring and that we're learning and developing. So anyway, I got sort of sucked into the development of that assessment program, which I ended up leading for 10 years, maybe. And that was sort of my first point where I was into medical education and really liked that a lot. One of my favorite things about running the assessment program is that it's a formative assessment here. And so this is an unusual program in that the school devotes really a lot of resources. And, and by that, I mean money to putting on a multimodal formative assessment program. You need to complete it. And we do sometimes find people who need to, you know, who need extra help to meet learning targets, but it's not you have to pass or you don't get to go to the next year kind of a situation. And so I wasn't grading in that format in the same way, but I was having a lot of conversations with students about what does this assessment mean? What am I supposed to make of this? This was really very hard to hear, or this was unhelpful feedback because there's no content. It just said, I'm doing great. What am I supposed to do with that? And those, those conversations I really enjoyed. And that sort of, it's the same thing that I like about student advising that sort of led to my interest in being an advisory dean. And then other roles that I have, I am one of two co-directors of the Dean's Teaching Fellowship Program here in the Medical Center, which is for mid-career faculty from across all departments and divisions and apply. It's quite competitive. They are all people who are interested in really deepening their skills and being educators within whatever context. So it could be dentistry, it could be really procedural specialty, it could be psychology or psychiatry or whatever. So I love advice faculty as well. It's just fun. And then being able to bring curriculum to help educators be better educators is, is a very rewarding thing. You know that I do some communication coaching and the way that came about is another mentor of mine who's the vice chair of our department is Susan McDaniel and she developed a communication coaching program here maybe 10 years ago. Initially hoping to kind of help think about when people are 
getting into trouble either with patient satisfaction or with safety or with interpersonal interactions with colleagues or any of those kinds of things. What is the evidence base that we know that helps with team function, with, with patient safety, with patient satisfaction, and how might we create a system to help people who are struggling in those areas? And after directing the assessment program, I became the director of the primary care clerkship. And that is kind of the backbone clinical course of the second year. Initially, when I started leading that, it began in January of first year. So there was a first year primary care clerkship and then the full year of the second year primary care clerkship. So that was a really big job. When I left that behind and became an advisory dean, I had a little bit of time available to do other things. And the coaching program was something I was really interested in. I had, you know, I had this interest longstanding in professionalism, some interesting experiences in spheres of faculty governance in the, I can't really tell you which years. I, I was the chair of the medical faculty council and then ended up being involved in faculty senate for the, on the river campus during some difficult times with race and also the university really kind of thinking about problems around sexual harassment. And so lots of continued interest in how do we improve our culture? How do we help people? Really what I care about most is building skills so that people can do better. It's great to know things, but it's better to be able to respond in the moment and improve skills that people have to do that well. And so I let Susan know, you know, I'm going to have a little bit more space in my schedule I'd be interested if there's a need. And she said, oh, absolutely, there's a need. And so that was how communication coaching thing happened. I have a small piece of my time committed to one of our surgical subspecialty residency training programs to do coaching with all of their residents, purely focused on sort of communication behaviors and skills. And so that's pretty great because I'm in a place where the clinical content is not my area. There's no judgment about, are you doing good surgery, but really focusing on interpersonal personal interactions and skill building for residents to help their function with patient care and also on their teams and in, in teaching conversations, which is, you know, the learner's a really important part of that conversation going well. I think that was in a really good showcasing of this kind of breadth of things that you are able to do with your time, even though I don't really imagine that medical school prepared you particularly for any of these one various mm -hmm. tasks that you now undertake. But that leads to my question question of where did you learn the skills that would allow you to do these things or where did you like where did your desire to do these things come from it's interesting I actually do think that my training in family medicine is pertinent in a lot of these in a lot of these things I think that um you know, one of the things that we specifically learn is to really think about family systems and context and think quite holistically about all of the factors that are at play in terms of a person's health and success in sort of getting better when they're sick. And family medicine training includes a fair amount of psychosocial medicine and, and behavioral health and understanding family systems. And I think the same sort of impulses and values that drove me to want to be a doctor also drive me to want medicine to be better and our health care systems and processes to be better in the level at which I think that's most interesting or I have the most maybe to bring 
is at the individual person level as opposed to, I mean, I don't know, the primary care clerkship is an example of a big sort of administrative hairy mess that I've run. And I do kind of like that. Like I like a good spreadsheet, don't get me wrong. And I really like thinking about system problems and structures. But I think in terms of the conversations that I find the most rewarding, a lot of times those are the one-on-one problem solving with individuals and helping them to do their work better. And so advising junior faculty or advising students is a place that I think I enjoy working in. Yeah, I mean, that does make sense now that you say it in terms of your love of this one-on-one personal relationship, which I think a lot of people tout as one of the real benefits of family medicine is that you get to build this more longitudinal relationship with your patients and tailor their treatment and their well-being to who they are. I'm also curious, do you have a story communication work with the surgery teams? I'm just so curious as to what that process looks like and I mean, just like I don't want to talk about individual patient stories, I don't really want to talk about individual learner stories. I think one of the things that, so I think maybe what makes more sense is to just describe the process. This process is built around direct observation, as I would argue should always be the case. And so we begin by just try to be part of this scenery, but spend four to six hours maybe with the residents and individually just watching whatever they do. We offer, but don't always do because of time constraints and whatever to have a pre-conversation. So if residents have specific things that are concerning them or questions that they want to discuss or whatever, or things that they want to set up in terms of context so that I am a little bit more prepared for what I'm looking at, we can do that. And then I just go. And so this might be, I mean, frequently is in the OR, it may be in clinic, it may be on just on call, going from thing to thing to thing and patient rooms and pulling drains and doing whatever. I frequently am with them in rounds. And so all of the many interactions that they have in in their daily activities are the things that we watch for. We have a coding kind of schema that we use for patient conversations, patient and family conversations, and also team behaviors that are, again, there's an evidence base for this, but then there's the personal sort of style stuff, the contextual things that that I can observe kind of as an outsider with a different objectivity, but it's also really important to discuss, to understand. What am I missing about the context? What did I get right about the context? They're, they're in the OR, they're in radiology, they travel all over in the hospital. It's a big, very complex, diverse kind of set of settings. In this particular field, they see pediatric patients as well as the full range of age spectrum. And so I find conversations are particularly helpful. After these observations, I generate this lengthy report. They might be six to 10 pages, maybe a lot of which is observation and description. This is what you did. This is what you said. This is what I saw the patient do. These are some recommendations that I would make based on this. And then it kind of concludes with some strengths that I want to reinforce and make sure you keep working on and some recommendations that I would suggest as sort of next things to work on. If I know in advance what the residents working on or their concerns or there's something that they're looking for input about, then that's tailored more to that. Regardless of what they say they're working on, if there's something that stands out to me as particularly important, then I'll include that. But it's not a laundry list. It's like three things. And then they have a chance to read and review that and think about it. and then we have a debrief conversation. And in that conversation, um, I 
you know, again, it's about the, it's about the learner. I really like to start by hearing what brought them to medicine and what them brought them to their discipline specifically um, as sort of a starting place for understanding um, and then get a little bit of their thoughts about what reading the report brought up for them. Um, and then we kind of go through the report in a fair amount of detail to just kind of talk about the, you know, the, the different pieces and what they, um, you know, sometimes they agree with something. Sometimes they tell me something about culture or context or that kind of condition or that kind of procedure um, that I didn't understand. And that actually sort of changes the way I would think about what I observed. Um, sometimes I challenge their sort of beliefs about what could or couldn't have happened in that context. Um, we end up talking about hierarchy and, and culture a fair amount. And how do you be both, how do you be successful as an uh, whatever your resident in this context? Um, how do you successfully, you know, sort of advocate for your own learning or take charge of your own learning or advocate for the patient or whatever it is that's needed, but also where, how do you locate this on a trajectory of you know, professional growth toward becoming the attending, right? And, and what are the sort of tasks and processes? And just, those are all the kinds of things that I talk about or think about. I don't necessarily talk in those words, but that's what I'm thinking about. And so it's a very, you know, there's all kinds of developmental thinking that happens when you're thinking about training. Um, but there's also a fair amount of just sort of, as in medicine, we have to just observe and be very kind of objectively able to describe what we saw, reflect back, this is what I think, tell me, you know, does that make sense? Um, in, in some ways that activity is very like patient care. I listen to your story. I try to objectively sort of take it in, synthesize process, give you my impression, um, and then we make a plan to go forward. So, I mean, I, I view them as kind of interestingly similar um, processes in some ways. Um, and then the, the report from this coaching stuff goes to the resident only. It's a, it's a formative sort of growth process, but I also do some comments on um, the, the milestones for their discipline. So milestones are something that the ACGME requires every residency program director to complete for each resident a couple times a year. Um, and obviously I'm not doing any of the surgical or technical ones, but there are some related to communication and professionalism and um, self-directed learning and stuff like that, that sometimes I can comment on if, if what I observed kind of is directly pertinent. But I think you capture in that a lot of those human elements that I think I'm looking, I think just a lot of things actually stood out to me and you're telling about this whole process. And I think the first thing was how the process that you use to point out, this is what you said, and then this is what the consequences seem to be, and this is my interpretation. And then do you agree or disagree with that? I think it was very interesting to me to see how you connected that to the kind of interviewing techniques that we're taught to use with patients and how I hadn't really made the leap from saying, oh, this is how I talk to patients to saying, oh, well, I could also use some of these approaches in speaking with peers or to try and promote learning. And again, 
you bring this interesting educational perspective of the interview isn't just about what is their problem and then what's the solution and then just throw that at them and then move on to the next person. It's how do I engage this person in such a way that they feel that they're involved and also have some input and some control over what is actually happening here. And I think the other thing that really stood out to me was how really vulnerable these conversations that you're having with these residents are, because at least in my experience, educationally, there's often a lot of pressure to perform, to get things right the first time, but that's just really so much not how life and learning works. So I just feel a lot of gratitude for you and for people like you who give people this space to say, these are things that I would like to work on and I do need some help understanding how to do this better. Thanks. It's really important to point out that the vision and willingness on the part of the programs to invest in this is why that can happen, right? There's no ACGME requirement, but it, it isn't the kind of conversations that can happen in just the regular hustle and bustle of managing a very complicated, sick patient list. And not every resident is ready for that or the same types of conversations that are necessarily, some of them are much more practical. And that, I think the frame of coaching is super nice that way. It's not therapy. <laughs> Although sometimes you could think about it in, in terms of deepening insight, perhaps, or reframing, what did it mean when that patient family member got mad at me or whatever, you know, so sometimes it may have echoes of therapy conversations happen and how we think about our impact on other people and whatever, but it's also often very concrete. These are behavioral habits that you can easily develop. You can, if your accustomed style is to not make regular eye contact for whatever cultural or personal or whatever reason, that's trainable. And we know that that raises patient satisfaction with their experience and trust in the person that they're talking to. Calling a person by name isn't something that comes naturally necessarily to some people, especially you know, it takes a long time to get used to the role of doctor and think that you have something to offer in efficacy, but it's a habit you can most certainly practice, right? As you do in the classroom, but sometimes the process, the long process of training, some of the skills you learn at early on don't necessarily sort of get formalized as habits. So I would recommend that take them one at a time or try them all at once try to practice sort of habitually doing those three things. But yeah, it, you know, it's a person-centered conversation, just like every conversation with a patient. If I don't talk to them in a way that helps them know precisely what to do, they're going to go home and like, I'm not taking their medicine every day. I'm not increasing the number of steps I walk every day that I'm asking them to do that. So I can make a list of recommendations. And if I, if it doesn't come in the context of a conversation that engages them, then, you know, chances are whatever they are, that, that that'll really actually be something that makes sense for them to do on a regular basis. So yeah, in, in my experience, the relationship within which those conversations happen is the bottom line. That's the most influential factor. It comes up hugely in COVID right now, conversations related to vaccine and whatever people's anxieties are and whatever messages that they're most worried about. Or, you know, if you're not specifically hearing what it is they need answered, then it's just far less likely that you're going to provide them with the information they need to make the best decision whatever that is for them, you know, can't really be my decision. My decision in general for almost everyone would be, I'd sure like to see you get vaccinated. <laughs> that, 
that can't be the sort of theme, right? It needs to be, I, I, it's really important to me that you get the information you need so that you can make a decision that you won't regret and that it feels right for you. I think the other thing that came to my mind in terms of giving people feedback, I'm kind of curious because in my personal experience of receiving feedback, whether it be, you know, in personal relationships or in a work context or whatever, there's usually some feedback of saying, well, you could do this. And some of those things are like relatively easy. It's kind of like flipping a switch. It's like, oh, I didn't understand. Now I do. We'll just do this going forward and it's fine. But then there's the things where people have been telling me these things for years and I may have been making small incremental progress, but people are still telling me the same thing years later. <laughs> so how do you approach talking with people or even with yourself, those things that has been something I've struggled with and I continue to struggle with it. And I don't really see a way to make it magically go away anytime soon. I mean, that's like the guts of primary care in some ways, right? Many of my patients have known me for 25 years now. It's kind of crazy to think about that, but it's true. And I think this is what motivational interviewing is made for. The things that are hard are always going to be the things that are hard. And they're, they're different for different people with what that is precisely. But I think... A couple things, having some empathy for the the what and the why, what is it that you, the patient I'm talking to right now struggles with the most and why is that? You can't understate the importance of a working understanding of emotional and mental health and strengths and challenges in thinking about meeting other health goals too, right? So someone who's innately anxious and has been for a long time and making sure that they understand that about themselves can really help in the conversation about whatever it is. A lot of times the habits that are hardest to change relate to lifestyle factors and food, exercise, sometimes relationship stuff. And, you know, so really kind of thinking about all the things that you've learned, asking permission to have a discussion about this, What's your understanding of the reasons why this hasn't gone well? What is your understanding of the reasons why to do it? What are the stakes for you? What are the things, the outcomes, the things that you care about in doing this? And then setting incremental goals and celebrating wins. And there's a lot of value for people in just knowing that you're in in it with them and you're still going to be their doctor and do your best for them, whether they achieve these small goals that we set or not, but setting follow-up visits so that there's some accountability if they feel like that would help them. And then I think we owe people the respect of providing them with clinical data and the meaning and implications of that. I'm surprised sometimes at how often patients haven't been presented with what does your ASCVD risk score mean? Things like that. If, if you say, I'd like to just explain what this means for you, is that okay? And they're like, yeah, I don't really want to know that. Then that's fine. But you know, we need to at least offer and talk about kind of what are the up and downsides of having, let's say this colorectal cancer screening. Why is it important for you to know this? Sometimes rather than ask permission, I just say, this is going to be really brief, but it's very important to me that you at least hear this from me because it wouldn't be fair if you didn't have this information or whatever. It's kind of like with your kids, like, Sometimes the things I want them to know that they really don't want to hear um, get prefaced with, okay, this is going to be awkward. You don't have to look at me. You don't have to answer, but it's really necessary for you to understand this. And then we talk about whatever, (laughs) you know, why some birth control options aren't as effective as others or (laughs) um, safety things or whatever. I mean, that comes in as well in patient care. 
I'm really touched by the framework of empathy that you bring to those conversations, especially when they're conversations where the patient or your child or whoever, your friend, whoever is coming to the conversation kind of knows, okay, this person knows that I've messed this up before and this is something that I'm still not getting right, even after all the conversations we had. Yeah, that just seems like such a very powerful place for that empathy to be and really is necessary if that conversation is going to have any chance of ending in a way that doesn't involve this person feeling judged or put down or kind of relegated to, oh, well, you're never going to be able to do this. I mean, in some cases, they may never be able to do this. Does it make me a better doctor if I say, you're just going to fail on this? I would say no. And no one thing is the sole determinant of their wellness or their worth. We're all better than the worst thing we ever did. So for, let's say for someone with, I, I don't know, you can pick any disease, any, whatever. The, there are some patients who I'm pretty sure are not going to quit smoking. Like they're going to die smoking. And, and that's not because they haven't tried. It's not that they don't believe that it would be healthier for them to stop. It's probably not going to happen. That doesn't make me stop bringing it up. <laughs> but it also is not the only thing about them. It's not the only thing about, I mean, I can think of multiple patients who are managing mental health conditions and have been longtime smokers. And the other things to talk about are how are your relationships going? How is your consistency with taking your medications? How are the side effects doing? Are we managing those well? What are you doing every day to stay engaged with other people and busy? What about walking, running, moving your body every day? There's a list of things that any individual can do to be healthier. And smoking is really, really bad for us. So I'm going to keep bringing it up, but there's plenty of stuff we can work on. I can give you the reference, but the psychotherapist who talked about unconditional positive regard, if you're going to stay fulfilled and engaged in medicine, you have to retain a positive regard for your patients and a recognition and deep belief that everybody's trying to do what they can for themselves. And, you know, nobody wants to be sicker or die sooner as a general thing fact that they came into your office or that they reached out by my chart or whatever means they're looking for some support and help doing something. And so we just have to meet that and figure out, well, okay, what goals are you here to, to work with me about? And how can I, how can I help with that? And then go from there. How do you approach trying to have empathy for yourself in these similar situations where either in a clinical setting or in a personal setting where this is something that, you know, I've known, I've struggled with for many years now. I'm, I mostly ask because I know myself well enough to know that for me, it's much easier to offer empathy to other people who are struggling with something than to offer empathy to myself when I'm just sitting here going, oh my God, I've been doing this for so many years. Why can I not just like change this one thing? So as you asked the question again, I mean, the first thing that came to my mind was some of the transition, you know, being a young attending is a really fraught time in terms of burnout. And I remember that a lot. For me, one of the things that complicated that was my intern year, my mother was diagnosed with metastatic cancer and she died in my third year. I was doing a chief residency years and it was this weird kind of hybrid thing for unrelated reasons to my mom's health. But two of us were being chiefs for two years. And at the same time, we were completing our third year obligations, whatever. And so that's a, that's a really bad sort of external life thing. 
And I think some of the challenges of transition to early attending identity were worse because of that. But for everybody, that's a really hard time. That's just a suddenly really you're you're not in supervised practice. You are it. You're the you're the attending, you're in charge. And I've as many people in medicine, I've always been very much a perfectionist and I want to control everything in, in primary care as we, as we've discussed. I, I wasn't always this comfortable with the fact that I can advise, I have an obligation to make sure that I'm making medically sound judgments and decisions and referring people appropriately and appropriately prioritizing dangerous results and whatever. And also patients are going to go home and they're going to do what they're going to do. And one of the hardest things about that for me was like, and I'm certainly not alone. Many of us just like, it's hard to go to sleep at night worrying did I say it strongly enough how important it is to take this medication or else that blood clot is going to whatever? What if they don't? What if they take an overdose of that opioid? What if, what if, what if, right? So that particular time in life, I think some of the things that really, really helped the most were conversations with colleagues who I hope for every physician that they have relationships with colleagues in which they can just be like, okay, I just have a really dumb question, but it's torturing me. I can't sleep. <laughs> or would you be willing to review this chart? I'm, I'm married to a physician. I think, you know, and my only practice is outpatient primary care. And so that edge of does this patient need to be admitted to the hospital or not? sometimes could be something that I might just process with my husband. And then in terms of some of the emotional stuff, having a therapist during some of that time around, what does this mean that my mother is dead and I'm going to have a baby and I'm going to be a doctor now and dear God, <laughs> right? Like critical. So accessing care is I think absolutely essential. And I really, honestly, prior to my training in family medicine, that wasn't really just part of kind of my normal frame, even though ironically, we were very, very close to this psychiatrist and his family. And, but I just wasn't something that growing up, there was even really access outside the context of serious mental illness to, you know, people I knew didn't just go to therapy because they were anxious. It just wasn't a thing. And then just sort of growing. You have to trust that you don't stop maturing when you reach your full height. You mature <laughs> as a physician for a really long time. I mean, I guess maybe what I omitted a little bit, it's very mutual, right? If you're having these conversations with colleagues, their challenges might be different, but we all have challenges. And so that's reinforced when we're in conversation and connected with each other. And it's helpful to realize that I'm not the only crazy one that doesn't sleep sometimes because I hope this baby's Billy is okay when we check it tomorrow. It, whatever it is that you ruminate about, other people's challenges are different ones and it's helpful to understand that. And then one piece of advice that a colleague gave me at some point when I was just obsessively worrying about something and it was, it was related to a patient's ability to adhere to their treatment. And she just said, Anne, you are working way harder on this patient's behalf than your patient is working <laughs> on their own behalf. And when that's happening, you have to settle down. You have to like take a deep breath and think about what is your boundary? What is your role? And what is their role? And you have to be okay with the just fundamental fact that sometimes patients for all their reasons or may, no reason that you get to know are not going to do what you tell them to do and, or they're not going to follow up and you're worried about them. And we can muster all of our resources 
and they can have a social worker involved and they can have whatever you can have done all of those things and it still may not happen the way you were hoping and you have to be able to let it go so in those examples you can hear kind of some of what my struggles were everybody's are different ones but i do think we all have them <laughs> and that connection to colleagues is probably one of my very biggest ones and then making sure that you prioritize the your most critical relationships if those are solid that just provides a foundation from which you can do this so i think that hasn't fortunately um been a struggle that i've had but it's an observation i guess that i would make that you have to be taking care of that you have to be taking care of your your primary relationships and that's part of self-care and that's part of empathy and if that's broken or if that's struggling it has to get prioritized because you can't go to work and be right for other people in a profession this demanding if you're not doing that the last question I would like to ask you is, could you elaborate a bit more on why you think that those core relationships, having those be right or at least well settled, is so important to being able to offer the most that you can as a physician? It's my answer. I don't know if it's the answer, but those are the bedrock of my wellness that I am taking care of my primary relationships. I mean, I think it's very human to brave and need to be in relationship with other people. And those who I am primarily committed to are the most important in terms of how I'm doing, how I'm going to be able to do. Sometimes there's more ability to have control, you know, the people who directly live with you, making sure that there's time and conversation and a recognition and empathy for each other. You know, there were times in intern year when I think the longest we went without ever seeing each other awake was five days. That happens. That's kind of messed up. And it's not unique to us. I know a staff person whose husband is on the road for a week at a time. That's not unique to us, but it means, okay, then when do we connect and how do we make sure we come back together? Because that's who I'm doing life with. And so if I'm worried and distressed and distracted about that, then I can't let that go. Then there are external things that you can't make plans for as much, like when my mother got sick. And then there's there need to be other strategies for setting that where I can work with it and being able to step into work and do what I need to do there, but realize that it's going to take more energy and I'm going to be more tired and I'm going to have more need to just rest when I get home and call home and whatever. I think it's it's just important to be clear and recognize what else is requiring emotional energy Sometimes there's our own stuff that we got to make a way that it doesn't take unnecessarily much energy. You can spin and perseverate and be really anxious and maybe need to get treated for that or whatever. But outside of that, it still requires just some attention and some empathy for yourself that, yeah, it's hard to be an intern. When you're waiting to hear what your mom's path report is, it's harder, right? Like, so that sucks, but let's just accept that <laughs> this week's going to be hard. Who should I let? No, because I can't not do what's expected of me. My patients have to get seen. My inpatient team is staffed in a certain way because we need that many people. It was really important to me to meet all my professional obligations within reason, but also know when do you have to go home? How, how do you know and who do you have to talk to to make sure you're making those decisions the right way? I think you do a good job of trying to hold both these pieces of yes we are professionals and yes we have obligations to other people whose well-being in their lives are something that they want to entrust to our hands and also 
we are people ourselves and we also have limits and we also have needs. And I think as you stated very well, if we disregard those in ourselves, I think it becomes that much more difficult to really be able to attend to those in other people, even if that's the intention. Sometimes I hear in myself the logic of if I just sacrifice things, you know, it's all for the patients and it's all for their greater good. And sometimes that's true. And sometimes it may not entirely be true. Yeah, you can't let your tank get too empty. But also, I would be remiss if I didn't add, it's absolutely a privilege. It's a heavy obligation and it's also a privilege. So when I think about how many people feel like they know me closely, it's kind of crazy. All these patients in other jobs, that's not the case. And so sometimes you have to remember it's a privilege when it feels really, really heavy or really, really hard, or the sleep schedule is just really not one that you would like, but that's kind of part of it. And there are other measures of control that we do have that come hand in hand um, with the hard job that it is. Thanks to Dr. Nofziger for sharing her story with us. Opening and closing music is composed by Amanda Chow. Dr. Eric Larson is my mentor and advisor. I brought up that I had recently been losing sleep by binging The Mandalorian, and he blurted out, I'm not the only crazy one that doesn't sleep sometimes because I hope this baby's okay. If you have any topics you would like to hear on the podcast, please email lspodcastproject at gmail.com. That's just an L and just an S, no periods. Thanks for listening and helping to build this community of mutual support, trust, and care.